Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Dietetics After Dark. Your source for food-related crime, scandal, and fraud. Hi everyone, I'm Sarah. And I'm Becca. Welcome back to Dietetics After Dark. How's it going, Sarah? It's going really well. We finally have, like, perfect weather in Toronto. Mm -hmm. 22 degrees, perfect sun. It's doing wonders for my soul. How are you? Humidex is low. It's oh, yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. Before it gets a little bit overwhelming. I was actually just having my coffee outside before we recorded. And did you see my Instagram stories yesterday? I posted a picture of a flower and I was like, what flower is this? And everyone was like, lilies. Even I said it. Everyone was like, it's a lily, <laughs> you dummy. But okay. So like when I went to get stuff for my back deck, like I've never done any sort of outdoor landscaping before. So I was just like, oh, that looks pretty. That looks pretty. That looks pretty. And then one friend was like, Sarah, get that lily off your deck. It's so toxic to plants that even inhaling plants? the pollen. Uh, sorry. It's so toxic to cats. <laughs> it's so toxic to cats that even inhaling the pollen can like put them into full kidney failure. Oh, no. And they would die within like three days. And like, Yesterday, I had my cats out there, and Oliver was just, like, licking the ground for some reason. And so I feel very <gasps> happy that they're okay. And I've already given the lily to another friend. <laughs> so oh, Damn it. I was going to say, I'll take it. <laughs> it's so pretty. <laughs> and, like, four of the flowers just started blooming. I'm pretty bummed. But if you have a cat at home, please learn from my cat mom fail. Get rid of your lilies. <laughs> little PSA for the day. Yeah. <laughs> 
Anything you want to maybe warn people about for today's episode? Yeah, I do have like a little poop trigger warning. (laughs) Today we're going to be talking about food poisoning and then Sarah's going to tell us about the, what is it, the peanut salmonella story? Yeah, the Peanut Corporation of America salmonella mass poisoning. Oh my goodness. But yeah, throughout the story, at least throughout my part, I am going to be talking about diarrhea multiple times. So (laughs) if that's not your jam, skip through. (laughs) You can't talk about food poisoning without talking about diarrhea. You can't. And it's important. So Mm -hmm. I couldn't leave it out. And it happens to all of us sometimes. And a lot lot of food poisoning is transferred through feces. Yeah, that's true. Which is so gross. Most of it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's do it. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a registered dietitian in your area. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes. This podcast may contain coarse language and mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you could rate, review, and subscribe, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. All right, Sarah. So when it comes to food contamination, there are three different types. So we have chemical, physical, and biological. Some people say that allergenic contamination is a fourth type, but since that doesn't really apply to everyone or all foods, I won't really get into it here. So chemical contamination refers to anything that has been contaminated with a chemical substance like bleach or anything that naturally produces a chemical, like toxins in certain fish species. For example, ciguatera toxin may be present in certain types of tropical or subtropical fish. It's produced in the organism and may accumulate in that fish if it consumes other fish with the same toxin. So it is harmless to the fish themselves, but it can have pretty serious impacts on humans, affecting digestive, muscular, and neurological systems. So symptoms include like being itchy, rash, tooth pain, cramps, diarrhea, uh, (laughs) and joint pain. In serious cases might be life-threatening. 
So thankfully, this type of fish toxicity is pretty rare, although its prevalence has gone up in more recent years as the global demand for seafood has increased. Interesting. I've never even heard of that. Mm -hmm. So the fish that are often living with this toxin are barracuda, red snapper, sea bass, and some other species, but they are typically found in coral reefs or low-lying shore areas. So to prevent this type of toxicity, you could avoid eating reef fish as well as the head, liver, intestines, and eggs of these fish, since that's where the concentration of the toxin is usually higher. So one really unfortunate yet fascinating thing is that the ciguatoxin can be found and spread through breast milk or semen. So it's possible to spread it to somebody without actually consuming the fish. Well, that's a bummer. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. Does cooking the fish get rid of the toxin? Do you know? Not this one. I guess not if it can be spread even through breast milk, body fluids. Yeah. This is one of, not one of few, but it's a special circumstance where heat does not actually kill this this toxin. Mm -hmm. Okay. Next up, we have physical contamination. And this is when a foreign object like hair has contaminated the food during the production process. So likely everyone has a physical contamination story of some sort. Yeah, I, I definitely, so many times I've had hair in food and I find it so, so, so gross. <laughs> yeah, nothing like no funny objects or like really weird objects. I had a salad once that had a screw in it. A screw? Which was kind of, yeah, a little screw. And they were like, oh, it looks like it's from a blender. And I was like, well, it's a salad. How did it get there? Um, <laughs> that was at a restaurant. But no, just just thinking about hair in food, though, especially if it makes its way into your mouth before you realize it's <gasps> enough to like, – my spine is curdling right now. Ugh. Okay. What about you? Quick question, though. Would you stop eating the food if you found the hair in it? So it definitely depends on the hair. <laughs> the length? The length. The width? The like, <laughs> amount it's been intertwined with the food. The curliness? Uh, possibly the curliness. <laughs> but like if it's really long and it's been like, you know, wrapped into a coleslaw, no mm. way. I'm not. I just okay, wouldn't yeah. eat it. I wouldn't finish it. But if it's like yeah. just like an eyelash that's lightly on top of something, then I'll just probably get it off and be like, I don't love that, but I'll still eat this. Yeah. <laughs> what about you? I would... Same thing. Almost the exact same. <laughs> I rarely am stopped by hair in my food. <laughs> but I actually also have like an, another story kind of similar to yours, but I was drinking a Campari spritz mm-hmm. at it's like, you know, the the diner yeah. in Toronto. We were going to this like Harry Potter symphony show. And so we went to go and have a drink. Sounds like an amazing night. Uh, it was <laughs> awesome. Except <laughs> in like one of my last couple sips of this Campari spritz, which didn't have any ice in it. I got like a piece of like crunchy thing in my mouth. Oh no. And I had swallowed it before I realized what it was. And I looked in the glass and there was broken glass at the bottom. Oh my gosh. That could have been dangerous. No, I, I yeah, it could have been because I had swallowed it and I told the server and I kid you not, <laughs> she didn't even take the drink off the bill. That's awful. Yeah. That's totally awful. I remember once I went out for a drink with a friend, basically the exact same thing happened. Huge chunk of glass in her drink. And same thing. The the waiter didn't take it off the bill. And I was like, I worked in the restaurant industry at the time. And the restaurant I worked at would not hesitate. If there is broken glass in and around anything that a customer is consuming, that gets off the bill. That's a free meal, I think. I think so, too. 
<laughs> like that's dangerous. Yeah, if I was working at table, I would just comp their whole meal, I think. For sure. Yeah, I'm on the same <laughs> same uh, page as you there. <laughs> but I survived. It was a couple of years ago. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and then lastly, we have biological contamination, which we'll be discussing in much greater detail today. So it's when food is contaminated by substances produced by living creatures. So this means humans, rodents, pests, or microorganisms. And it can include bacterial, viral, or parasitic contamination that can be transferred through saliva, blood, or feces. And this type of contamination is the most common cause of foodborne illness globally. So the World Health Organization estimates that every year, 600 million people, or 1 in 10 people, get sick from contaminated food. And about 420,000 people, so almost half a million people, lose their lives each year because of it. Wow. That's pretty staggering because it is largely preventable. It is largely preventable, mainly through cooking your food Mm -hmm. properly and proper sanitation, food handling practices. Some of it is unpreventable, but I think that that number could definitely be lowered with proper care. So over $110 billion USD, so over $133 billion, is lost annually due to medical expenses and productivity costs resulting from food contamination at a global level. So that's a lot of money. That is a ton of money. Mm-hmm. So symptoms like diarrhea are the most common and are normally pretty mild, but can become more serious with dehydration and large loss of electrolytes. So I feel like since COVID-19, people have become increasingly interested in the pathology of bacterial, viral, or parasitic infections and links to things like zoonotic disease, which are when pathogens jump from an animal to a human. Now, there's a lot of different things that can cause biological contamination, and these are usually broken down into a few groups. So we have viruses and bacteria, which can live outside of one's body, parasites, which actually need a living host to survive. And lastly, there are prions, which I won't get into much here just for the sake of time, but they are proteins that contain infectious agents and include things like mad cow disease, which I think we're going to cover in an episode soon. Yes, definitely. (laughs) I'm excited for that one. (laughs) So first off here, we have viruses. So two of the most common types of foodborne viruses are norovirus and hepatitis A. So norovirus infections are characterized by abdominal pain, vomiting, and diarrhea, and are typically contracted through fruits and vegetables, shellfish, water, or carriers. So we talked about this one a little bit in detail in our organic food fraud episode, but norovirus is commonly referred to as the cruise ship virus since it's known to spread incredibly fast on cruise ships, simply because of how contagious it is and the close quarters on these ships. And as we know, it is spread through contaminated food, but that food is commonly contaminated with human feces. Oh, dear. Mm -hmm. I have a fun idea. I think everyone should have a shot or (laughs) something every time you talk about feces or diarrhea. (laughs) What about stool? Because that's coming up. It's all under the same umbrella. (laughs) All right. Play play that game of drone. (laughs) So drunk by the end of this. Okay, so hepatitis A, on the other hand, is a longer-lasting virus that impacts the liver. It's often spread through undercooked or raw shellfish, other food and water that has been contaminated, or through food handlers when sanitation practices aren't upheld. 
So symptoms include things like fatigue, fever, dark urine, and jaundice, which can last from a few weeks to several months. So up to 15% of people will show no symptoms at all, but they might carry the virus for up to six months. And in Canada, the hepatitis A vaccine is recommended to those over the age of six months. And you might also need it before you travel to another country, especially if that country has a higher prevalence of hepatitis A. So now on to parasites, which are the most disgusting in my opinion. Mine too. Something about them just like makes your skin crawl. Yeah, like wiggly little bugs. Mm Mm-hmm. Worms. (laughs) Worms. <laughs> yeah. Well, they can be. They can be they worms. They can be. They can be worms. So they are transmitted through food and water, and they require a living host to survive, as I mentioned before. So they can be transmitted from human to human, animal to human, or vice versa. So heat does tend to kill most parasites. So usually it's transmitted through infected water or raw or undercooked fish and meat which can contain things like parasitic tapeworms. So one of the most common foodborne parasites is Giardia or beaver fever. I was so curious. I was like, why is it called beaver fever? Because that's how I have seen it or heard it being referred to as. And it received this nickname after drinking water in Banff, Alberta, became contaminated with an infested beaver dam and a mass outbreak occurred. So this impacted like locals and tourism in the area for an extended period of time. Oh, no. Yes. So Giardia is a microscopic parasite that is typically transmitted through feces. And depending on the amount of time that it remains in the body, it may lead to weight loss, malnutrition, and dehydration. And it can also cause lactose intolerance in some people, which may extend beyond the amount of time that someone is infected with Giardia. Oh, interesting. And I actually have another quick story here because... So my dog, Rosie, we adopted her from Mexico, and she had Giardia when she arrived. Mm-hmm. She, she was found in a dump, and I think that likely cool. just from drinking the water in that area, and there were other dogs around, mm-hmm. I'm sure it just, got I'm sure a lot of the dogs had Giardia. Yeah. yeah. And it was so fascinating because when we got her, she was two pounds. She literally fit <gasps> in the palm of my hand, and we had to put her on Giardia antibiotics. Oh. And as she got... Better. She obviously started like filling out and gaining weight and growing, but it was so bizarre because her ears, which were floppy, pointed straight up for like a week. Oh. And I looked it up at the time and it was, it has something to do with just like nourishment. So wait, are her ears pointy now or floppy? They're floppy. So they flopped back down and they were floppy when she was a puppy, but there was this period of time where she was like becoming more nourished where yeah. her ears just stuck straight up. Oh, that's so cute. I want to see it. <laughs> yeah. You'll have to send me a picture of when she was tiny, tiny, tiny. Okay. Well, actually, I can... Put it on the Insta. Yeah, I can put it on the Insta. We'll do that. She was such a sweet puppy. Aww. Actually, she was a terrible puppy, but she looked cute. <laughs> she looked cute. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So lastly, we have foodborne illness caused by bacteria. And there are a lot of these, so I will only name a few. And most of them have unique origins and treatments to get rid of them, but a lot of the symptoms may be similar, which can make it challenging to identify what type of food poisoning you might be experiencing without proper testing. So the most common foodborne pathogens are E. coli, Campylobacter, and Salmonella. And symptoms include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, drink, (laughs) fever, and headache. 
E. coli is most commonly associated with unpasteurized milk and uncooked meats. Campylobacter is associated with raw poultry, raw milk, and infected drinking water. And salmonella outbreaks are often the result of contaminated eggs, poultry, and other animal products and fecal contamination. So this can also include produce that has been contaminated with any of these things as well. So in 2017, it was estimated that there were over 95 million cases and more than 50,000 deaths associated with salmonella. Wow. So symptoms, I know it's a lot. Symptoms can begin as early as six hours after consumption or as late as a few weeks after, which makes it incredibly difficult to pinpoint the root or the cause of that food poisoning. Mm -hmm. So infections can be determined through stool testing, drink. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you knew this because I didn't or I simply forgot from our food science days, but the bacteria Salmonella typhi is what causes typhoid infections. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. That's so interesting. This made me think of Typhoid Mary. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. I love that story. Who I, yeah, I think we need to do an episode on her. Totally could. But essentially, she was a chef, like a housekeeper in like the 1800s, early 1900s. And she essentially had typhoid. She was a carrier of typhoid, so yeah. she didn't have any of the symptoms. And she killed multiple people because she continued to work as a chef and housekeeper and right. refused to quit. But like it was at this time where people didn't understand germs and hand washing like we do. So she was like, mm-hmm. why are you telling me I have this disease? I do not feel sick. Yeah. And do you know that like apparently it was from her famous peach ice cream that they think it kept spreading she by? She got it. Oh, really? She kept, they were like, make your famous peach ice cream. And like, it's a fresh, made with fresh peaches. And she was cutting them with her hands, not clean. Oh my gosh. That's what I heard on, I think, another podcast. Anyways, that story is fascinating. We should totally do a deep dive. Yeah. I mean, I'm never going to look at peaches the same again <laughs> we'll for so many reasons. Before. <laughs> yeah. But what I got sick from, which I mentioned in our previous episode, mm-hmm. long form episode, oh, yeah, was, was peaches. <laughs> There's something up with peaches. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Eat your peaches. (laughs) Anyways, salmonella typically lasts between four to seven days, and that's without antibiotic treatment. So normally it can kind of run its course and you'll be absolutely fine. Normally. But sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, especially in certain vulnerable populations. And that ties in perfectly to my story. Oh, good. Margie Parsons, Robert Moss, Minnie Borden, Betty Shelander, Nellie Napier, Hester Fields, Clifford Toussignan, Doris Flatgard, Shirley Aylmer, Bobby Hullett. These names belong to people that have never met each other, but have one major thing in common. They all enjoyed peanut butter or products containing peanut butter between late 2008 and early 2009, sourced from the Peanut Corporation of America that was contaminated with Salmonella typhurium, and it killed them. Hmm. That's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. So this mass poisoning was caused by extreme intentional negligence by the business owners and is considered a crime that could have easily been prevented. It sickened at least 714 Americans. That's the confirmed cases, but estimates run as high as 20,000. Wow. 
hospitalized 166 people, killed nine, and led to the recall of 3,913 products made by 361 companies. Wow. Right? Wow, that's a lot. This was the biggest food recall in history at this point in time. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So let's do it. (laughs) I know this. Again, we were like, this will be a nice, easy, tight, succinct story. No, 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 no. They're never easy. (laughs) A crazy, tons of research for this one. Absolutely fascinating. So my main sources for this scandal were an article from the Journal of Critical Criminology by Paul Layton entitled Mass Salmonella Poisoning by the Peanut Corporation of America, State Corporate Crime Involving Food Safety, an article by Lindsay Layton and Nick Miroff for the Washington Post entitled The Rise and Fall of a Peanut Empire, and documentation by the Center for Disease Control, so the CDC, which has like a really intense and kind of amazing process for tracking outbreaks, which I'm going to tell you a little bit about later. Okay. Okay, let's time travel, since we can't actually travel. (laughs) (laughs) It's 1977 in rural Gorman, Texas, population 1,236, and Stuart Parnell and his father Hugh are running a small peanut business that supplies candy and ice cream makers when they decide to expand. So they buy a small processing plant where they can roast and sell wholesale peanuts, peanut butter, and peanut paste. And thus, the Peanut Corporation of America, or the PCA, was born. At first, the business struggled. They made about 50000 in sales in their first year. But the Parnells worked hard, and they started selling their peanuts and peanut products to bakeries and large snack manufacturers. And after about five years in business, the Parnells had grown their annual sales to $12 million. And by 1994... The small peanut plant in Gorman, Texas, had grown to reach 30 million in annual sales with over 95 employees. That's good growth. That is great growth. The Parnell family had pretty much achieved the American dream, and Hugh, the father, was ready to retire. And so he sold the plant while Stuart and his two younger brothers decided to stay on in consulting roles. But Stuart couldn't keep his hands out of the peanut butter jar for long. And in 2004, he repurchased the Gorman peanut plant and partnered up with another struggling peanut plant in Blakely, Georgia. Within three years of partnering with that plant, the revenue had tripled and Stewart had added on another operating facility in Suffolk, Virginia. Then Stewart shut down the Gorman plant, which was the original, and opened up another plant in Plainview, Texas. Stewart was described as a hands-on manager at all three facilities, and as a trained pilot himself, he would fly his plane between facilities so that he could be present on site fairly frequently. And that's kind of an... Yeah, I know. And that is kind of an important detail as we begin to talk about some of the total neglect that was happening at these facilities. Right. So from the outside, it seemed like whatever Stewart got involved in became an overnight success. Was it his business savvy? (laughs) Turns out, Stuart was an extremely frugal man. He operated his businesses at the lowest possible cost, relying on the cheapest peanuts available, paying his employees minimum wage, which was about $6.25 an hour, and operating bare-bones facilities that he kept in total disrepair. So 
Basically, Parnell would look for dire situations and then make his move. So someone who had really old peanuts that they needed to get rid of was, in his mind, a perfect supplier. A processing plant that someone was about to shut down was the perfect place for his next roasting site. Mm. So let's get into some of the testimonies about the PCA plants. And when I say the PCA plants, I'm mostly talking about the three main ones that Stewart owned, but especially the one in Plainview, Texas and Blakely, Georgia. So David Brooks was a buyer for a snack company and had been to the PCA processing plants three different times throughout the mid-1980s. So we're going back to the 80s. Okay. And he would come to inspect the plant to see if they were a good plant to buy peanuts from, basically. And every time he opted not to purchase from the PCA plants due to the conditions. And this is a quote by David Brooks from the Washington Post article. It was just filthy. Dust was all over the beams, the braces of the building, the roofs leaked, the windows would be open, birds would fly through the building. It was just a time bomb waiting to go off, and everyone in the peanut industry in Georgia, Virginia, and Texas, they all knew. So it wasn't really a secret, which is really disheartening. A former employee, Victoria Brown, whose job was to sift through peanuts and remove any sticks and rocks, recalled that the plant was scorching hot, and whenever it would rain, the roof would leak. Another former employee and eventual whistleblower, Kenneth Kendrick, went on Good Morning America to discuss the Plainview facility that he worked at. And he claimed that the basement was always flooded, had rats, Mm. and had a roof that would drip rain contaminated with bird poop. Oh, no. Into the production facility. And these accounts just give us a snapshot of what the plant looked like in the years leading up to the outbreak and would later be confirmed by food safety officials and testimonies in court. Wow. And if this is like something that your everyday employee picks up on, that's bad. Absolutely. And that's not even really the worst part. (laughs) So Parnell's plants were providing peanut and peanut butter products primarily to the institutional food market which does service a lot of vulnerable populations. So it was going to schools, prisons, long-term care homes, hospitals, and to food manufacturers to use in cookies, snacks, ice cream, and even dog treats, and also to low-end markets such as dollar stores. So these are locations that encompass a lot of vulnerable people with weaker immune systems, so children and seniors who typically will have a harder time fighting off a foodborne illness. So let's talk about salmonella and peanuts. Becca gave us a wonderful overview of salmonella earlier, but there are 2,600 different subtypes of salmonella. So like there's the one that caused typhoid. Typhoid. There's salmonella listeriosis is a really common one. But the type that we're specifically dealing with at the PCA plants is salmonella typhurium. And what is it about peanuts and peanut butter That makes such a great home for sneaky salmonella. I feel like we usually think about like eggs, raw chicken, but peanuts grow in the ground. I don't know if Mm -hmm. you've ever seen a peanut plant. I put a picture there for you. So those are like, the peanuts are like potatoes almost. Yeah, that's not what I, not what I had envisioned. I honestly thought they grew above the ground. I knew they grew on plants, but I thought they were almost like, um, like how a pea would grow. Yeah. Like a summer pea. But they're under the ground, so they're attached to the roots of the plants, very similar to like how you would harvest a carrot or a potato. So fascinating. I know. It looks so cool. Yeah. And so if the irrigation water is contaminated with feces or manure, 
then there is a possibility for contamination. Also, if there are rodent droppings near the raw product at the plants, that could easily contaminate the peanuts as well. Usually, a well-regulated production process does involve a kill step that will heat the food to the required temperature and duration to kill the salmonella and other pathogens before bringing that food to market. For salmonella, that would be 131 degrees Fahrenheit for an hour, 140 degrees Fahrenheit for half an hour, or 167 degrees Fahrenheit for 10 minutes. And typically, this process will kill the salmonella, but many reports say that the peanut roaster at the Plainview plant was not calibrated properly, and so that this kill step was likely not happening consistently. Hmm. Also, best food practices dictate that the raw product and the processed product need to be segregated in order to avoid cross-contamination, which the plant was not doing. And there are many records of that. Hmm. It's disappointing. (laughs) It is disappointing, especially knowing what happens because it's like you couldn't have just stored them in another place. You couldn't have stored them safely. would have been so simple. And preventable. And preventable. Okay, so in a peanut processing plant, keeping salmonella to a minimum is extremely important because – A low-acid, high-fat food like peanut butter makes a really nice, safe environment for salmonella to hang out in. Salmonella can survive up to two years in a jar of peanut butter, and it's considered stable because it won't grow in the absence of water. And so because it's stable and not growing or changing, visually or taste-wise, you very likely will not be able to detect that it's contaminated. The water activity of peanut butter, so water activity is like It describes the amount of water available in a product that could contribute to microbial growth. Mm -hmm. Flashbacks to food science. I know. (laughs) So in peanut butter, the water activity is very low. So it's typically about 0.35, which won't allow for the growth of pathogens. However, once that jar of peanut butter is opened or the package of peanut butter crackers, if any sort of water or moisture gets into that packaging, then you have a problem. Also, if there's water present in a peanut processing plant, maybe from a leaky roof, the salmonella Mm -hmm. will be able to grow and spread on the peanuts. And I'm sure you remember, but all of those testimonies talked about a rodent problem, which means feces, leaky roof, which means water, and improper roasting techniques and storage conditions that basically created a recipe for disaster. Sounds like it. I know a lot about (laughs) leaky roofs recently. Why, do you have one? Yeah, didn't I tell you? No, we just had one too. So ours wasn't technically the roof, though. Was yours just from the rain? Yeah, it was from the rain. I like stepped in some water in our sink. Mm. Or not in our sink, I wasn't in the sink. I stepped in some some water in our kitchen and just like wiped it up thinking Dan had spilled something. And then like later in the afternoon, I stepped in more water in the same spot and I like opened the like under the sink area and Mm. there was like a little baby flood and it at first I was like oh shoot it's got to stop it turned off the water was starting to get like a little bit more calm and then I frantically realized oh shoot it may have gone through the floor and it went into the basement and caused some damage on the ceiling and it got into our electrical box so we had to call an electrician 
a plumber. Oh my god! And this was all at like 8 p.m. So all of these people had to come at like midnight. Oh, I think you, the one, the plumber came at 11 p.m. <laughs> you totally did tell me that. I think it was right after the stay at home order happened too. And I was like, oh my goodness, are they going to be able to come in and help you? But they were. Because it was an emergency. It was an emergency. <laughs> I know. Leaks are no joke. As someone who's not a homeowner, I kind of didn't even realize how serious they were until we had one recently. And my landlords were all over it because like you mm-hmm. got to stop a leak as soon as it starts. ASAP. Yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, the PCA did not. Okay, so what happens when salmonella enters the food system? Because, you know, it's not a perfect system. There's room for human error, and it will happen sometimes. Also, some people are just negligent. <laughs> but when it does get into the food system, typically a patient will go to their doctor with symptoms of salmonella poisoning, and the doctor will take a stool sample. And if that sample tests positive for salmonella, They'll then fingerprint the DNA of that specific strain of salmonella and upload it to the CDC's PulseNet, which compares different DNA fingerprints of the bacteria to patients from all over Canada and the U.S. so that they can recognize different clusters of the disease with the same fingerprint so that they can then track the origin of the products. Wow. I know. It's so cool. And if a common DNA fingerprint is found in multiple places— then public health officials will call the victims, take detailed notes about everything they ate, probably like a 24 or 48-hour recall, and start to make the connections that way. So it does take a little bit of time. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. And I, I think it's so cool that that's happening behind the scenes and like it's there to protect us. And a lot of people probably don't know about it, but it's also like it's not a perfect system. And it, like you said, mm-hmm. it's really hard to sometimes pinpoint exactly what caused the food poisoning. And then if a jar, like let's say it's peanut butter, if the jar has been opened, you can't necessarily say that that was contaminated before it was opened. Mm -hmm. And, And I'll touch on that a little bit more in a second. Okay, so in early 2009, media reports of a salmonella outbreak related to peanut butter were starting to spread across the country, but the specific origin hadn't been pinpointed yet. Back at his peanut processing plant in Texas, Stuart Parnell was starting to get worried. Public health authorities had made that connection to peanut butter, specifically from a container of King Nut peanut butter, which was supplied by the Peanut Corporation of America. But I believe at this point that they couldn't confirm, again, because the jar had been opened. So they can't say, right. like, it's definitely from this plant. They just know that it's, you know, getting pretty likely and they're getting closer On January 7th, 2009, Parnell emailed the vice president of King Nut and attached an article from MSNBC entitled, Salmonella Outbreak Spreads to 42 States. And alongside it, he wrote, I'm sure it's something we did. Oh my gosh. The King Nut executive responded back very quickly, I'm recalling everything. To which Parnell responded, now my heart is really in my throat. I'm going to church tonight. (laughs) At this point, public health officials, oh, I kind of already said this, but they couldn't officially trace it back to Parnell's plans because of the open peanut butter situation. So they don't Mm -hmm. know for sure if it was like a knife with jam on it that got stuck in that jar of peanut butter, right? Of course. Okay, so we know from the state of Parnell's facilities that he was not doing his due diligence to ensure a safe facility. But Parnell had been operating his plants for years without an outbreak or without alarming local officials. And this is the United States of America. There are checks and balances in place. There's a very rigorous food safety system that is designed to prevent these things from happening. 
Is it possible, maybe, that Parnell just didn't know what he was supposed to do? Well, no. (laughs) There is evidence that Parnell was aware of these major concerns as early as 2006, when inspectors from Nestle visited the Plainview plant for an inspection because they were looking for a new peanut supplier. Rumor has it that Parnell knew Nestle was coming to inspect the plant and actually took steps to disguise how severe some of the major health concerns were, but apparently not well enough. (laughs) So the Nestle inspectors noted the weakness of the pest control program, the lack of any pathogen monitoring program, and had concerns for the handling of raw and processed peanuts in a common processing area. They also noted that there was the potential for microbial cross-contamination due to the lack of physical isolation and proper airflow. And the report did state that none of these issues would require significant capital investment to resolve, so they were pretty cheap and easy fixes. That's so sad. It's insult to injury. Yeah. So let's revisit the whistleblower, Kenneth Kendrick. He worked at the Plainview plant, which I believe was the biggest offender here, and he started after the Nestle audit. And he told the New York Times that the plant looked like something out of the 1950s. He said the machinery constantly broke down and that it was a daily challenge just to get the plant running. And they would use low-grade peanuts that had often been in storage for years, which makes it more difficult to kill the salmonella. Because an older peanut is also drier and therefore needs less roasting time. So that means that the salmonella is even more likely to survive the shorter roasting process. Also, recording of basic information like roasting time and temperature was not done on a regular basis. And this is normally standard practice to have a logbook of some sort to track these things. Of course, I've worked in food service, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mm-hmm. would have to take the temperature of everything. Oh, yeah. Yeah. See, I love hearing about a safe place. <laughs> And I could honestly, I could go on and on about the different witness accounts of the plant condition, but I feel like you're getting a nice picture of how just like it's not run properly Mm -hmm. at all. And it's gross, frankly. And the biggest complaint and red flag that Kenneth Kendrick confirmed was that whenever it rained, the roof would leak. (laughs) And workers had apparently repeatedly requested funds to repair the roof, but would receive emails denying the request. Additionally, the basement would flood and they would just keep pumping water out instead of fixing the problem. So the basement always had standing water. And documents from the Department of Justice show emails in which officials from PCA told employees to, quote, air hose the top of the storage containers because they're covered in dust and rat crap. Oh my God, it's disgusting. I know. It's bad. Also just feels like laziness. Like totally. just the the water, like the flooding. Mm-hmm. And since I feel like that could be fixed fairly easily, figure out where the water's coming from, and then you would use less manpower. Yeah. And how I don't know if they had to hire anybody to come in and take the water out, but it seems like that's more costly than just fixing the problem. Totally. It seems like they were getting workers that work at the plant that probably aren't trained to do things like treat a leaky basement or a leaky Mm -hmm. roof or things like that to do these kind of patch jobs just to get the plant running each day. But they weren't, they were not giving them the tools to do it properly, even when they expressed that they wanted to do it properly. The other thing that just kills me is they like, the emails are so open and obvious. Like they weren't hiding things in emails. 
So they were just openly very confident, I guess, about how they were operating this plant and thought that they would never get caught. And they might not have had this not have happened. You're very, that's very, very, very true, unfortunately. Okay, so clearly there were some shady and disgusting things happening at the PCA plants. And honestly, when I read all these reports, I'm kind of surprised that it didn't happen sooner. But it gets a little bit worse. (laughs) So while PCA had a duty to ensure food safety when selling its peanuts, the companies who buy the peanuts also have a duty to ensure its safety. Right. And so many companies will ask for a COA or a confirmation of assessment to confirm the, that the proper testing has been done and these peanuts are safe. And in order to f- fulfill these COA requests, PCA would semi-regularly test for salmonella. So absolutely not as regularly as they should have, but they would test occasionally. Here's what's supposed to happen if you get a batch of peanuts that test positive for salmonella. If they test positive, the batch is dead. Mm-hmm. End of story. You can do a second test just to confirm or to try to, you know, maybe test a different part just to see the extent of the problem. But that entire batch should be destroyed so that it doesn't end up entering the food market. Mm -hmm. This is standard. It prevents companies from retesting the same batch until they get a negative to try to, like, save, you know, part of it or save money. And so that's, you know, the basic rule. And at the congressional hearings, one lab owner testified that if you get one positive test and 49 negatives, the one positive test trumps the 49 negatives. The batch is dead. Makes sense. Yes. And so PCA, if when they got a positive test for salmonella, they would retest the batch in different areas until they got a negative test result and then proceed to sell it. Oh, my gosh. All of it they would proceed to sell. Yeah. Oh, gross. A government investigation would later find that PCA knowingly shipped out contaminated peanut products at least 12 times within a two-year period. And in six of those cases, they actually conducted the first positive test and then didn't even bother testing to get a negative test. They just sent out a positive batch six times. That so they this could is prove. just like huge neglect. I don't even know if it's called neglect at this point. It's I think it's just, just a crime. Criminal activity. Yeah, it's fraudulent. So PCA would also forge test results by taking multiple samples from known clean batches and then submitting them for testing under different batch numbers so that they could have like positive tests for these batches that didn't even get tested. And one email from PCA clearly stated that if a company wanted a COA, they would make one and that, quote, the girl in Texas was very good at whiteout. (laughs) I know, it's so bad. Okay, so let's get into the fallout. From September 2008 to March 31st, 2009, 714 confirmed cases of Salmonella typhurium. Oh, I think I'm saying that wrong. Typhimurium. Oops. I actually think it might be typhoid. I I was kind of wondering that too, because I didn't know when you told me that in the intro. Well, let's insert a fact check here. So Salmonella typhi and Salmonella typhimurium are not the same thing. Salmonella typhi causes typhoid fever, like Becca said, and can be spread from human to human. Salmonella typhimurium causes gastroenteritis, leading to diarrhea, vomiting, fever, and abdominal cramps, and is typically spread through raw or undercooked food and feces. From September 2008 to March 31st, 2009, 714 confirmed cases of Salmonella typhurium Related to PCA peanut butter were reported across 46 states and Canada. 
Some estimates put infections as high as 11,000 to 20,000. The unique DNA fingerprint was linked to an unopened jar of peanut butter in Connecticut. So they finally got that unopened jar and was genetically matched to peanuts from PCA. Even that would be incredibly difficult to find an unopened jar of contaminated peanut butter because nobody's been infected by that specific, I guess maybe batch is not the right word, but that jar. Yeah, totally. I think they have to find enough open jars to be like, okay, it's most likely this. And then they can go seek out peanut butter from that batch from PCA plant and then test. And the victims' ages ranged from under one years old to 98 years old, Mm. although half of them were children, which is really sad. And this connection caused the Texas Department of Health to immediately shut down the plant and recall everything that the plant had ever produced, triggering the most extensive recall in U.S. history at the time, involving more than 360 companies and more than 3,900 different products manufactured using the PCA peanut products, including products from major brands like Kellogg's, Sara Lee, Little Debbie, Cliff Bars, and General Mills. This recall had significant impacts on public perception of food safety, trust in government regulation, and also financial impacts for the companies affected. So Kellogg's losses alone were estimated to be $65 million, which is 2% of each year's operating profit. And that was based off lost inventory, recall and disposal costs, and an unknown amount in lost sales. Wow. But the companies were far from the only victims. Shirley Aylmer had owned and operated her family bowling alley in Minnesota called Wadena Lanes for most of her life. After she retired, she enjoyed gardening and bowling in her bowling league, bird watching, and spending time with her five children and four grandchildren. And in July of 2008, she was diagnosed with a cancerous brain tumor, and she was in the midst of battling cancer when she consumed a product containing peanut butter from the PCA plant and passed away. Her son, Jeff Almer, wrote, lung cancer and a brain tumor didn't kill my mother. Salmonella contaminated peanut butter did. She was 72. Oh, so sad. Minnie Borden loved Little Debbie's peanut butter cheese sandwich crackers. In the fall of 2008, Minnie began complaining of abdominal pains and noticed that her appetite was dwindling, but she continued to snack on her favorite Little Debbie snacks. Well into December, Minnie's stomach pain became excruciating, and she eventually called her daughter to take her to the hospital, and she passed away shortly after. Bobby Ray Hullett was raised in North Carolina. Bobby was better known as Pete and His wife, Shirley, um, they were married for 45 years. He had worked at the Southern Glove Mill for 30 years, and he suffered a work injury that left him with only one functioning hand. But despite this injury, Pete was a very hard worker and continued to work. One of Pete's favorite snacks was the Austin brand peanut butter crackers, and he would have between two and three packs a day. And he passed away in his early 50s, the day before Thanksgiving with his family by his side. Robert Moss was raised in Louisiana. He was a World War II Navy vet and the owner of Moss Carpet and Flooring. After eating Austin brand peanut butter crackers, Robert became very ill and passed away at the age of 83. Betty Shelander was raised in Blowing Rock, North Carolina. She was a lively woman who loved music. Just two days after Christmas of 2008, Betty began feeling nauseous. 
The next day, Betty's husband, Albert, went to check on her and found her dead at the age of 53 due Mm -hmm. to salmonella from her favorite peanut toffee flavor of Zone Perfect Bars. Clifford Toussignan was raised in Duluth, Minnesota. An army vet and a family man, he was sickened after consuming peanut butter sandwiches made with salmonella-contaminated peanut butter. He passed away at the age of 79. Nellie Napier was a survivor. She had raised six children on her own, managed diabetes, and beat cancer. The grandmother of 13 and great-grandmother of 11 loved reading, doing puzzles, cheering for the Cleveland Indians, and she passed away from salmonella at 80 years old. And Hester Fields had temporarily moved into a rehab center after some eye surgeries. She was preparing to move back in with her daughter when she started to feel ill. It's likely she got the salmonella from peanut butter crackers that were being served at the hospital. And she was 78. Wow, what a tragedy. I know. What a serious tragedy. And these things happen, but when you put a face to them, it really, you know, a lot of people are tragically affected by this total neglect. Yeah, and and with that last case with Hester Fields, it was hospital food potentially. Well, PCA supplied institutions, which is extra shitty. So those are just some of the names and stories of the people who lost their lives to salmonella linked to the PCA outbreak. There were many more who were ill or injured from the mass poisoning that could have so easily been prevented. So what happened to the Peanut Corporation of America and Stuart Parnell? The Peanut Corporation of America was immediately shut down. The Department of Justice brought a 76-count indictment against four of the top PCA executives. Stuart Parnell was sentenced to 28 years in prison for his role in, I know, in the nationwide salmonella outbreak, which is the largest sentence in a food safety case in history. His brother, Michael, was sentenced to 20 years. Mary Wilkerson, a quality control officer at PCA, served a five-year prison sentence for obstruction of justice. And two PCA managers who agreed to plead guilty and testify at the trial Daniel Kilgore and Samuel Leitze served six and three year prison terms, respectively. Man, that is a lot of prison sentences. It is. I'm happy to I'm happy to see that action was taken on this, but I feel like in terms of some of the other cases that we've covered, you mm-hmm. don't normally see this amount of time being given out for food crimes. Absolutely. But you will also don't see this like blatant paper trail in emails that just showed their extreme disregard for their customers, for the people buying their products. Like, it was almost like it was a joke. The girl in Texas is good with whiteout. Yeah. (laughs) I I do think about the Teflon case, though, and I know it's not Mm. food, like, directly related to food, but it's what you cook your food on. And there were Mm -hmm. studies that the company had either funded or, or there were just studies saying that these things weren't good. Right. to be produced. Yep. And I don't think anybody got a, a prison sentence in in that case. What year was the Teflon situation It was again? in 2000, in the 2000s. I wonder if it set almost precedent. Like I, if people, you know, as people become more aware of things like this and more like passionate about safety of their food and products, maybe it did some sort of precedent setting. I do think it was after this because this was 2000. It was after. This is 2008, 2009. Okay, because I think Teflon, the actual court case, was like 2017. Oh, oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty recent. Yeah, <sighs> I don't know. I think I think 
they were just so guilty and it was like pretty well documented that they were guilty. Mm -hmm. I mean, Stuart Parnell's actions led to the deaths of nine people for sure. And yeah sickened many others and also caused, oh my goodness, I didn't even bring this whole part up, but part of the reason that they may have dealt out such heavy sentences, and I did leave this out because it was like a little bit out of my scope, (laughs) is that it's considered almost like the corporations were so severely affected that they probably had some pull. You know what I mean? Kellogg's lost like 65 million. And would they have been, if it had quote unquote, just been nine people who lost their lives and no one else had been affected, would they have had these sentences? Probably not. That's a good point. But because like 361 corporations had to do recalls Mm -hmm. and there were huge significant losses that, I mean, there's a lot of power there. It's sad that that is the truth, but you're probably right. Yeah, unfortunately. So justice was served, although it is obviously very heartbreaking to know how easily this could have all been prevented if the business owners hadn't been so focused on cutting corners and saving money and, you know, being fraudulent. (laughs) So what happened in the aftermath of the PCA mass salmonella poisoning? So after PCA shut down, the White House Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations held a hearing and they went through all of the old emails and documents showing that PCA had intentionally released contaminated product into the market. And so Congress ultimately passed the Food Safety Modernization Act, the FSMA, which was a sweeping overhaul of food safety laws that hadn't been updated since 1938. (laughs) So a bit outdated. And I think, you know, that is a positive to these kind of like complicated food safety or food transparency cases like we saw in the horse meat scandal is that action does get taken. So Mm -hmm. when major cracks in the system are identified, you know, new updated rules and laws will happen. So it does suck that, you know, changes could have happened sooner, but I am happy that changes were implemented. Yeah. Okay. Let's bring it home with some tips for minimizing your risk of salmonella. (laughs) Uh, Wash your hands, especially after using the bathroom (laughs) or changing diapers and before handling or eating any food, especially if there's, take a drink, diarrhea. (laughs) (laughs) How drunk is everyone right now? I know. Um, always wash hands after contact with farm animals, pets, animal feces, another drink, and uh, animal environments. Keep your food prep area clean. Keep raw meat and poultry separate from your produce and other foods when shopping, storing, and preparing food. I think that's a really practical one that we can all do. Mm-hmm. Wash hands, cutting boards, countertops, cutlery, and utensils after handling uncooked poultry. Wash your raw fruits and veg before eating. Definitely. Avoiding unpasteurized or raw milk and foods made from unpasteurized milk. Do not eat raw or undercooked eggs. Yes, that includes cookie dough, even though I break that rule myself pretty often. Same here. (laughs) So good. It hasn't got me yet. (laughs) And um, make sure you're thoroughly cooking raw meat and poultry to destroy bacteria. So meat, poultry, and hamburgers should be cooked until they're no longer pink in the middle. And do not eat food in areas where animals are present. That's it. What about dogs and cats? I mean, if they're yours in your home, I guess it's probably okay. <laughs> but you never know. And that's why you like, don't. yeah, I don't know. Even just with the Giardia stuff, because Rosie had it bad. Mm-hmm. I was thinking while I was doing my research, like I probably could have caught it from her. I didn't. Totally. But I may have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to pick up her poop. Yep. Right? 
That's it, though. That's it for the story. Isn't it absolutely, like, unsettling that yes. this person would do this? Really mm-hmm. tragic story. It's so sad because it could have been prevented and all of those people's lives wouldn't have been lost. It's Yeah, it's a really tragic story. But yeah, I think it goes to show the importance of food safety. And I loved your list of tips to avoid salmonella at the end. But I feel like that could also be, like that list could be used to avoid many different types of food poisoning. Yes, that's Not true necessarily for sure. specifically salmonella. Mm-hmm. I agree. So wash your hands. I feel like everyone is so good at washing their hands now, though, because of COVID. That's true. I wonder if food poisoning Ooh. will go down. Hey, that's actually really interesting, especially if people continue to wear masks in food service establishments, like in the kitchens and stuff. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it would reduce cross-contam. To be determined. TBD. All right. That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us for so long. <laughs> it was a great one, though. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Not so fast. We forgot one thing. Okay, Sarah. So I have a question for you for our next long episode. Ooh. What is your favorite sticky sweetener? My favorite sticky sweetener? Well, I'd say maple syrup, but we've already done an episode on maple syrup. So honey. Honey? It's a good one. Thank you. Mine's definitely maple syrup, but I can assure you that this episode will not be on maple syrup. Mm. Or honey. Or honey. Interesting. But you're going to have to stay tuned. Can't wait. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dietetics After Dark. You can find all the references and materials used to put this podcast together in our show notes at dieteticsafterdark.com. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our show. For more information, follow us on Instagram at dieteticsafterdark. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at dieteticsafterdark at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about them at earwormradio.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.